crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Peter Hook was just a boy, about 10 years old, born and raised by loving parents in Philadelphia. On a warm and sunny June day in 1825, as he walked near a wharf along the Delaware River, a man beckoned him over. The man was friendly, a bit older than 20, and offered Peter a drink aboard a schooner. Peter accepted. Once aboard, things seemed pleasant at first, but then another man, this one thickly built and rough-looking, stepped forward with a knife in his hand. If you halloo, goddamn you, I'll kill you, the man said. Peter didn't doubt for a second that he would, so he kept quiet as he was forced below deck, his hands tied across his body. Then Peter was chained to a pump and left to sit, alone in the dark. Soon, another boy was forced below deck and chained beside him. They spent the night there, terrified. The next night, they were joined by two more kidnapped boys. Finally, three days after Peter's capture, the schooner started to move. Peter managed to catch a glimpse of lighthouses that told him that they'd passed out of the Cape Henlopen, meaning Philadelphia, his lifelong home, was already more than 100 miles behind them. It was June 1825, and though Peter didn't know it yet, he and the others had fallen victim to one of the most notorious kidnapping rings in American history— a reverse underground railroad run by the Patty Cannon gang. And though Peter's story made headlines and got a couple of men arrested, it didn't stop the terror. What happened to Peter Hook was becoming more and more common in Philadelphia in the 1820s. The story was always similar. A young black kid, often just a boy really, a teenager or younger, would see a smiling face and hear the promise of a drink or maybe some work, and the next thing they knew, they were captured. To be clear, it was illegal. Yes, some states shamefully allowed slavery in 1825, but the abolitionists, people whose consciences told them that, hey, owning other people seems pretty damn awful no matter what the law says, had at least managed to get lawmakers to adopt a few rules. For starters, people of color intended for slavery could no longer be imported after 1808. And while already enslaved people could be sold, those sales had to occur within the same state. Supply was dwindling, especially in the expanding southern states where plantation owners had built their wealth off of forcing people of color to work for free. From a Delmarva Life documentary. So slave trade became a popular way to make money. And sending slaves down south could fetch big bucks. It wasn't legal because it was across state lines, but it was profitable. An able-bodied black young man could easily get $300. $1,000 wasn't unheard of. To put this in perspective, an acre of land in this era was $1. Women and the elderly didn't sell for as much as men in their prime, but they still sold. 
The only people of color not sellable were infants, toddlers, and small children. But more about that later. That was one crime, buying enslaved people and illegally selling them. But Peter Hook wasn't enslaved. Peter Hook was a young black man who'd been born legally free. His parents, Peter Sr. and Betsy, were free. I hesitate to make too big a distinction because I don't want it to sound like it was okay to sell the enslaved people either, but when Peter Hook was abducted, he was literally just a boy walking down the street. His parents expected him home. Now, Patty Cannon was a woman who lived right between Dorchester and Sussex counties in a town that was then called Johnson's Corners. The state line separating Delaware from Maryland splits this town in two, which worked to her advantage. Before we talk about that, though, let's talk about Patty. This character was born a nobody, so her early records are spotty at best. It's possible her birth name was Lucretia Patricia Hanley, but that's based on a pamphlet written about her posthumously that might or might not have nailed down the details. As a documentary by Delmarva Almanac said, The authors of this particular book probably took literary license trying to connect her by name to the famous poisoner Lucretia Borgia. Either way, the name stuck somewhat. Even on genealogical sites, you can find Patty listed as Lucretia, though there's nothing in contemporaneous records suggesting that was her real name. While we can't trust this book entirely, it is one of the earliest sources we have documenting Patty's life, so I'm inclined to give it the benefit of the doubt, especially because some of the stuff that is verifiable gets it right. According to this pamphlet, Patty's father was a guy named L.P. Hanley, the son of a wealthy English nobleman who had made his way across the pond to settle in Canada. There, he met and married a sex worker, not the most respected vocation to wealthy English noblemen, and L.P. was disowned. It seems he was in love, though, and he and his wife had four daughters and a son, and for a time lived a hard-working but decent life. At some point, however, Hanley fell on hard times and decided to test the waters of criminality. He joined a gang of smugglers and moved to New England, where he apparently learned that crime did pay. At one point, he became worried that a friend, one of those snobby non-criminal types, might turn him in. So he sneaked into that friend's cabin and buried an axe in the man's skull. The man had been asleep in his bed next to his wife, whose screams drew out her neighbors, who in turn accosted Hanley as he left the house. L.P. Hanley was, according to this pamphlet, tried, convicted, and hanged for murder. After his death, his widow, Patty's mother, opened a boarding house, and it was supposedly there that Patty met her future husband when she was around age 16. Jesse Cannon had been a boarder who fell ill, and Patty helped nurse him back to health. Once recovered, he brought his young bride south to live with him on the Nanticoke River near Laurel. For three years, things seemed to go fine, but Cannon's health again deteriorated, and soon he passed away. This was either the late 1780s or 1790s. I can't be more precise because we don't know for certain what year Patty was born. She was either born in 1759 or 1769. Either way, to put this in perspective, note that her birth date predated the Declaration of Independence. 
That documentary suggested that Jesse Cannon died sometime before the 1800s, but the documentation I found shows that he died in 1821, when he was about 50. I can't explain the discrepancy. Patty was described as a beautiful, dark-haired woman who liked to drink and flirt. Whenever Jesse died, he and Patty had at least two daughters, though if the 1800 Delaware census is to be believed, possibly three sons as well. One of the daughters, Mary, married a man named Harry Brereton. Now, while I know Patty was a kidnapper on her own, it's sort of a chicken or the egg situation in terms of whether Brereton was the kidnapper who taught Patty how to do things, or if Patty taught him her ways. But either way, they started to work together. The Cannon Gang, as it would come to be known, always had Patty at its center. Her son-in-law, Harry, was a key figure in the early 1800s, while the gang was rounded out by various 'er ne'er-do-wells. They operated in two distinct ways. One was the way described earlier, kidnapping people, often children, off the streets. The other approach made more use of Patty, and one like this. Patty would tell a slave trader, someone looking to make a purchase, that she had a human to sell. She would invite the trader to her house and serve him apple toddies and other libations, and he would find her charming and beguiling and ever so friendly. Something would happen, and the enslaved person she had for sale wouldn't be available quite yet, but Patty would say, no worries, you go on your way, and maybe if you still have some money left, you can circle back and see if he's here then. Then the slave trader would thank Patty for her hospitality, tell her he'd see her in a few days after he was done with his business in such and such town, and ride away on his horse. And then Patty and her crew would hop on their own horses and find a place to intercept the trader on his way to said such and such town. They would kill and rob the man, who they knew had a lot of money because enslaved people were expensive and you didn't buy them on credit. This ruse worked incredibly well, until the gang got sloppy one day in 1813. That case involved a man named Rigel. Rigel was a slave trader, and he stopped at Patty Cannon's house for dinner. This is Michael Morgan, who wrote a book called Delmarva's Patty Cannon, The Devil of the Nanticoke, talking to a public access channel. Rigel happily indulged in Patty's food and drink, And then, as the sun began to set, announced that he needed to get going. So after dinner, he he left, and she immediately got her son-in-law, who was Harry Brettington, and two brothers, Jesse and John Griffith, and she got them together. Rigel had naively mentioned that he and his comrade were headed for the nearby town of Laurel, which was about a 12-mile ride. After those two men left in their horse-drawn carriage, Patty stepped out of her dress and changed into men's clothes. And then she, Brereton, and the Griffith brothers hopped on horses of their own. She took a quicker route to to be able to head him off and ambushed him. In his book, Morgan describes in some detail the flintlock muskets that the four gang members used in their ambushes. It speaks to how much guns have changed since the nation was new. He wrote, quote, Flintlock muskets were not entirely reliable. The firing mechanism depended on a flint striking steel and creating a shower of sparks that would land in a pan of powder, ignite, and burn through a touch hole to the main powder at the breech of the weapon. If all went right, that powder would ignite, and the resulting explosion would send the bullet toward its target. 
A strong breeze, wet powder, and other conditions could cause the weapon to misfire. If all four weapons of the cannon gang were fired at once, the ambush stood a good chance of success. End quote. In this instance, they hit their target, but the shot wasn't immediately fatal. Plus, he had that friend traveling with him, and the friend was unharmed. The friend rushed Rigel into town, where he died. But before he died, he described his assailants. Most of them, anyway. He didn't describe Patty as one of the shooters. The foursome was far enough away that her wearing men's clothes probably threw him off. But he knew that she had set him up either way. And he gave authorities enough information that they knew to zero in on Brereton and the Griffith brothers. Hoping that they could find a weak link in the two brothers, they targeted the younger one, Jesse, in hopes he would talk. One of the brothers, Jesse, turned state's evidence and uh, testified against the other two and not Patty. They were convicted. I'm curious about two things here. Just what interrogation tactics did they use to make Jesse turn on his own brother? And how could it be that Jesse was scared enough of Patty that those same tactics weren't enough to turn on her? Anyway, Burton and John Griffith were sentenced to death, and the hanging was scheduled to take place in Georgetown, the county seat of Sussex. Executions at that time were public affairs, and strange as it seems, you, you know, you'd pack a picnic lunch and go to town to see the hanging. And uh, this, was, this was a double execution. That was a big thing. So there was a whole crowd of people coming into Georgetown. Because this was 1813, it was during what we now call the War of 1812, which is kind of a misnomer because it makes it sound like the war was contained within that year, but it didn't officially end until 1815. Anyway, Georgetown officials were so concerned about crowd control at this double execution that they actually asked soldiers who'd just defended a nearby city from the British to swing by and keep an eye on folks gathered for the hanging. Apparently the execution went off without a hitch. How do we know this? Because it's mentioned... In Daniel Rodney's diary, Daniel Rodney would later be governor of uh, Delaware, in two entries. First, an entry that, that says they have requested the troops for that execution, and then... A couple days later, he he notes that the execution was carried out. With that public hanging, Patty Cannon lost three gang members. Her son-in-law, meaning daughter Mary, was now widowed, and also the Griffiths. John, of course, because he was dead, but also Jesse, who from then on was ostracized from pretty much everyone. Non-criminals didn't want anything to do with him because he was a criminal, and criminals wanted nothing to do with him because he was a snitch. Despite taking such a hit to her operation, Patty Cannon was apparently undeterred. She simply found new gang members and kept right on kidnapping and killing. After Mary Cannon's first husband was hanged, she remarried a man named Joseph Johnson. Like husband number one, he partnered up with his mother-in-law right away, robbing and killing anyone with money while also kidnapping people of color to sell. Johnson's brother, Ebenezer, also joined the gang. It was a whole family affair. Joseph Johnson was the guy who pulled the knife on 10-year-old Peter Hook. He was described as an intimidating figure, standing six feet tall with a thick neck and menacing demeanor. Johnson's accomplice, the man who lured Peter to the boat in the first place, 
was a black man named John Purnell who became quite skilled at winning people's trust so they'd fall into his sinister trap. Often, even the kidnapped person would never realize that Purnell was in on the scheme. Joe Johnson would often scream at him and threaten him, but it was all part of an act. In addition to his kidnapping enterprise, Johnson ran a tavern that also served as his home and as a prison for many of his victims. Peter Hook, for example, ended up in the tavern's attic, chained to a giant staple in the floor. He languished there for months. Like Patty Cannon's house, Johnson's tavern was right on the border between Maryland and Delaware. Janet Jones, former manager of the Seaford Museum, talking to Delmarva Life. It was an ideal place to build a tavern, so travelers, businessmen, people traveling, especially on their way maybe from Cambridge or Easton to Georgetown, would stop and, and spend the night and have something to eat. That wasn't the only business enterprise the family had going. Mindy Burgoyne, author of Haunted Eastern Shore. She was right near the water, right near where there was a ferry. It provided the most direct route between Delaware and New Jersey via the Nanticoke River. It was called Cannon's Ferry, no less. So you had Johnson's Tavern and Cannon's Ferry, owned by the same extended family. But the location was ideal for more than standard business reasons. It made it easy to snag somebody and use them as a commodity to sell. It was a lot of money. The location also made it tough for authorities to act on any tips they might receive. Janet Jones again. Her house straddled the Maryland-Delaware line. And a number of times, Delaware authorities would go to question her and she'd go to Maryland. Maryland authorities would come to question her and she'd go to Delaware. She, she got away with doing that several times. The same was true for Joe Johnson, who was known to open fire on law enforcement and claim they had no jurisdiction over him when they dared approach his bar. He was successfully arrested once in 1821 for kidnapping. A news story soon after referred to him as the quote-unquote notorious Joseph Johnson and spelled out the sentence he had received after his conviction. It was, quote, to receive 39 lashes on the bareback at the public whipping post, to stand in the pillory for an hour, to have his ears nailed thereto, and the soft part cut off, end quote. He endured all of it, except having the soft part of his ears cut off. Apparently, the governor reversed that part of the sentence. Still, despite Johnson being notorious and having a record, he managed to slip past authorities time and again. And as for Patty Cannon, well, they were slow to suspect she played a role at all in the kidnappings. Patty was a really good liar. If a neighbor saw a person of color on her land and asked what Patty was up to, Patty had a story ready. She had people convinced that she was helping runaway slaves get to the North. And people believed her because she was a woman and she was attractive. She was articulate. And so they, they believed her. And she, she got away with this for about 25 years. But the kidnappings in the summer of 1825, including the one of Peter Hook, changed everything. Here's what happened. Joe Johnson, who was basically the gang's co-leader and its heavy, handled the physical kidnappings. Once he delivered Peter Hook and the others he had nabbed in the subsequent days to Cannon, who oversaw them in the tavern's attic, Johnson went back out to find more people. 
See, it wasn't worthwhile to travel south with only four people at a time. He needed about a dozen to make as much profit as possible. That's why Peter Hook was literally held captive for months in that attic. It was a slow-going process, a kidnapping here, another there. They tried to be careful criminals. They didn't want Philadelphia authorities to notice too many people going missing at once. But authorities did notice. Now, you might be wondering, why target Philadelphia? Well, the reason is simple. A lot of African Americans were gaining their freedom, so that the proportion of slave to free blacks was changing. There was a, a healthy free black population. Pennsylvania was a free state. The country's first abolition society was founded by Quakers in Philadelphia in 1775. Benjamin Franklin served as its president at one point. While there were some free black people in Delaware, it was still a slave state. And by the way, technically stayed one until 1901. And while Patty Cannon's gang did occasionally kidnap already enslaved people, that was risky. African Americans had no voice. They, they couldn't testify against a white. Yet, if you kidnapped a slave, uh, the slave owner would come after you because that was his property. So the free, free blacks were, were the most vulnerable people on the Eastern Shore. In a world where some places allowed people to own other humans and some places didn't, things got tricky, as Morgan explained. There was uh, sort of a ferreting out of, of the status of people. And uh, basically, uh, Patty Cannon took, took advantage of that. If she kidnapped a half a dozen free blacks to, to sell them into slavery, and she chained them together and marched them down the road to the Nanakook River to load them on a on a vessel to ship them south. That would not be unusual to see people of color being chained together and marched down the road because this was a slave area. So she could do this with impunity. Now you might be curious why the kidnapped people didn't just scream at the top of their lungs that they were free. Well, for starters, the Cannon Gang had already forged documents saying otherwise. The other thing was that whoever they captured was told not to reveal that they were had been free. And the way they ensured this is that they would get an accomplice to stay with them for, for a little while, earn their confidence, and if they said that they were free, then they would report that to Cannon and her gang, and beating would ensue, so that they quickly learned not to reveal that they were free. And that really was uh, a key to them being able to be able to transport them south. And once they were south, a lot of the plantation owners didn't care if they were buying free people of color. They just wanted workers. Peter had been picked up in June 1825. By August, an estimated 20 black youths had vanished from Philadelphia and its suburbs. And while there were rumors that some had drowned or run away, the number was high enough that Philadelphia's mayor and chief of police started asking questions. They heard that maybe there was a kidnapping operation, and they even heard that it might be linked to a schooner called Little John, which was owned by Joseph Johnson of Delaware. But rumors are one thing. Finding evidence is another. In January, so about six months after these disappearances, Mayor Joseph Watson got letters from two plantation owners in Mississippi. 
One letter was from a guy named John Hamilton, who had planned to buy enslaved people off a guy named Ebenezer Johnson. As the deal was being hammered out, the group of kidnapped people were left with Hamilton for the night. In the morning, before Ebenezer returned, one of the boys approached Hamilton and said, Hey, we were born free, and we were kidnapped from Philadelphia. The boy said they were beaten horribly and lifted his shirt to prove it. Hamilton considered himself an upstanding moral slave owner, yes, really, and wasn't about to buy a group of people who'd been mistreated. He alerted a magistrate. When Ebenezer arrived, he was pissed, but able to produce a bill of sale for his slaves. The magistrate believed the young men who said they were kidnapped, so he didn't let Ebenezer take them. But he didn't know that Ebenezer's bill of sale was forged, and if it were real, he had no way of proving that Ebenezer had knowingly bought free men. So Ebenezer walked. The young men were left in Hamilton's custody while the matter was sorted. John Henderson was the writer of the second letter sent to the mayor. He was Hamilton's neighbor, and he helped Hamilton question the young men to learn their stories. One of the kids was named Samuel Scomp, and the story he told was just like Peter Hook's. Purnell, the black man hired as a decoy by Joe Johnson, approached him on the waterfront and offered him a job helping to unload a cargo of fruit. Scomp said sure, and then was kidnapped. He ended up in a group with several others, one of whom was only nine years old, and they were forced to tromp shoeless through Alabama, 30 miles a day for 500 miles. In some terrain, their feet burned and bled. In others, they suffered frostbite. Anyone who complained was whipped. One of the boys kept falling, leading to more flogging. Just short of Hamilton's plantation, that boy died. In a macabre coincidence, his name was Joe Johnson, no relation to his captors. Hamilton and Henderson were convinced the boys were telling the truth. They were earnest. They were able to describe Philadelphia landmarks and explain where they lived and where they were lured. Everything pointed to them telling the truth. But in some states, Mississippi included, black people weren't allowed to testify against white people in trial, period. So Hamilton and Henderson weren't sure what to do about it. Mayor Watson reached out to the attorney general to try and find a legal way to hold the Johnsons accountable. But the best they did at first was simply alert the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which passed resolutions condemning the law that allowed kidnappers to escape punishment. But then Watson got another letter this time from former Mississippi Governor David Holmes of Natchez, who said that his neighbors knew slaves, said they were free people kidnapped from Philadelphia by Joseph and Ebenezer Johnson. Now, Peter Hook was in this group of people. Holmes summoned a lawyer to take Peter's statement, and this convinced Watson that the free people found on Hamilton's plantation and near Holmes's land were stolen by the same kidnappers. He wrote a letter published in multiple newspapers calling on residents to step forward with any information to end the quote-unquote atrocious villainy. Some did. The mayor got involved so that he sent a white person back to, to Mississippi who was able to testify that these people of color were indeed free and they were able to be released. Mayor Watson was relieved to return those kidnapped back to their homes 
but he still didn't have white witnesses to solidify the kidnapping charges. The only accomplice arrested was the black man who served as decoy, John Purnell, who died six months into his prison sentence. It seemed the Cannon Gang would get away scot-free. After the 1825 kidnappings got them so close to being caught, the Cannon Gang finally seemed to slow down. It helped that Mayor Watson, though unsuccessful in prosecuting Joe Johnson, at least inconvenienced him by offering a $500 reward for his capture. Because of this, Joe Johnson moved to Alabama and tried to keep a low profile. Patty Cannon stayed on her farm for a while and eventually decided to rent it out. One spring morning in 1829... They had a tenant farmer in one of her own houses. Uh, he was plowing in the field and his horse sank to the haunches. Curious, the tenant wanted to figure out why the ground there was so soft, so he dug a little and hit a chest. It was about three feet long and painted blue, and inside of it were adult male bones. The news spread like wildfire throughout the area and drew tons of people to the property looking for more remains. And after all, these people had heard rumors for years, and while some people were adamant that Patty Cannon could not have done anything so atrocious, hearing that bones had been uncovered piqued the interest of even her most staunch defenders. The townsfolk believed they knew whose bones were in the chest. About a decade earlier, a slave trader from Georgia had driven through town with $15,000 in cash, with which he aimed to buy humans. At some point in his journey, he stopped at Johnson's Tavern, then disappeared, yet left his horse behind. Patty laid claim to the horse because she said, it was left on my property, so obviously I get to keep it, which of course raised eyebrows, but the guy wasn't from the area and there was no proof anything nefarious had happened, so the matter was backburnered. Now with the discovery of these bones, police had something to work with. They picked up a gang member named Cyrus James, who apparently told them everything. Those bones were indeed that missing slave trader, he said. The man had been eating dinner when either Patty or Joe Johnson shot him right at the table. Then Joe, Patty, and Ebenezer each took part in shoving the corpse into the chest and burying it in the field. But that's not all, James said. They uh, started digging some more and turned up additional remains. Some of those remains belonged to children. See, though most of the people kidnapped were male, the Cannon Gang did pick up a fair number of women as well, some of whom had kids. Patty had a habit of killing those children. Their cries might draw outside attention, and besides, they weren't worth anything monetarily, so she disposed of them, brutally. This part's rough. One child was bludgeoned with a piece of wood. Another was thrown alive into a fire. One of the kidnapped women became pregnant while detained, and Patty slit the light-skinned baby's throat because she suspected someone in her family was the father. Finally, with the discovery of these bones, police had more than rumors to go on. This was the first physical evidence that Patty Cannon had been murdering people and burying her yard. She was arrested, taken to jail. The newspapers called her vile, wretched, one of the most wicked women to walk the earth. Her neighbors in Johnson's Corners agreed. 
author Mindy Burgoyne again. He was so hated, people in the area had the town's name changed to Reliance just to dissociate itself with Patty Cannon and that gang. Cannon's Ferry was renamed Woodland Ferry. Editorials written about Patty's arrest predicted that she would soon be tried alongside Joe Johnson and both would be hanged. But that didn't happen. Not because they were spared by the system, for once, but rather because Patty Cannon was quickly found dead in her jail cell. At the time of her death, the cause wasn't reported, but a few years later, a player in the prosecution said she drank poison to kill herself. Considering that she'd seen her father and one of her sons-in-law hanged already, it seems feasible that she would have opted to find a way out of that particular ending. In some recountings of this tale, I've read that Patty Cannon confessed before she died, not only to the kidnappings and infant killings, but also to poisoning her own husband, Jesse. But as far as I can tell from contemporary news coverage, that didn't happen. We probably don't even know half of what that gang did. Patty was buried in the jail's graveyard, which was excavated in the early 20th century to make way for a parking lot. Patty's skeleton was exhumed and reburied in a potter's field near the new prison, though without her skull. Instead of being buried, her skull became something of a tourist attraction and was put on display in various venues. In 1961, it was loaned to the Dover Public Library. It's now on long-term loan to the Smithsonian. In 1939, a sign was erected to mark Patty's house, drawing countless rubberneckers to the place. They invariably left disappointed, though, because a Mr. and Mrs. A. Hill Smith had owned the home since the 1890s and weren't inclined to market their home as a one-time house of horrors, even though their many visitors would have preferred they do so. In a September 7, 1934 news story, Mrs. Smith said, quote, Visitors to my home would believe anything I told them. If I poured a bottle of red ink on the parlor floor, They'd be thrilled to think it was blood, and even a couple of rusty chain links would satisfy their yen for mementos, end quote. Years later, the historical marker outside the Smith home was altered to acknowledge that no, this particular home was not Patty's. Some of its features and materials weren't around in the 1820s, and not only that, but the location was wrong. It sits too far from the Nanticoke River. This revelation came courtesy of the PBS TV show History Detectives, which determined that Patty's house had long been raised. So today, the sign reads that the horrible acts happened nearby. To research this story, I read Michael Morgan's Delmarva's Patty Cannon, The Devil on the Nanticoke, watched a number of retrospective news programs, and read contemporary news coverage. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts 
For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.